Welcome, 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 everyone, to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, and uh, this is an unannounced live stream on Monday. It's 1.37 my time, so people have already finished lunch, but uh, in other time zones, I'm sure they're joining in. We're going to talk about something today that happened yesterday. Uh, someone sent it to me this morning, and I th- I just thought, you know, this is it's worth talking about. I haven't finished the Tim Keller series yet. We still have one episode, believe it or not to go. And I'm hoping to finish that this week. But Tim Keller did something yesterday that I thought was worth talking about. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about it. And I'll just jump right into it. And maybe we'll talk about some other things as the podcast unfolds there. The um, chat is open for questions or comments, and I will respond accordingly. Let's start with the subject at hand, though. This is the article that dropped this is from the atlantic and it is called uh, the title of it is american christianity can still come back american christianity can still come back our society is secularizing christianity seems to be in long-run decline but renewal is possible so uh this is by tim keller and it came out on february 5th so yesterday And I'm just going to read through it and give you some comments as we go, because Tim Keller, I skimmed through this already. I didn't read the whole thing, but what it looks to me like he's doing is just repackaging what he's always believed from the beginning, really, if you know anything about him. And um, he, he, I don't know, it's (laughs) maybe some of you think it's a broken record, but it still has a certain amount of persuasive power. Obviously, it's in the Atlantic. So there's an advantage that the Atlantic, and I would say more generally, managerial elites in the media, there's an advantage they seem to think that exists from posting this, from running a Keller piece on this. And we're going to talk about that as well. Why do they keep allowing this? Why do they keep putting it in their publications. Uh, as you know, Tim Keller, Russell Moore does the same thing. They frequently will show up in Washington Post, New York Times, The Atlantic. And the narrative is generally the same, but we'll go through this one. Let's treat it like a standalone. Here it is. Upon joining the Presbyterian ministry in the mid-1970s, I served in a town outside Richmond, Virginia. New church buildings were going up constantly when I arrived in Manhattan in the late 80s. However, I saw a startling sight. There on the corner of 6th Avenue and West 20th Street was a beautiful Gothic revival brownstone built in 1844 that had once been the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. Now it was the limelight, an epicenter of the downtown club scene. Thousands of people a night showed up for drugs and sex and the possibility of close encounters with the famous of the cultural avant-garde. It was a vivid symbol of a culture that had rejected Christianity. And, you know, I agree with this. I mean, the problem that he's addressing, I don't think conservative, you know, Orthodox Protestants who want to hold on to their tradition, their truth. I don't think they disagree that this is happening. In fact, in the area I live, I live maybe two hours north of New York City, an hour and a half if you're depending on where you're going in New York City and what the traffic's like. And. Uh, For those who live in New York City, now where I live is not really considered upstate. But for those outside of New York, anything outside the city is upstate. 
So that's why I usually say I live in upstate New York, but I'm in the Hudson Valley. And in my area, which is not, at least growing up, it wasn't urban. Even when I was a kid, I saw exactly what Tim Keller's talking about. I know of a prominent, or at least it was at one time, a prominent church. I think it's con- was congregational in Rhinebeck, New York, which isn't far from where I live. And it's now, it's a restaurant. And that story is replicated constantly. We, we see that all the time in the Northeast, especially. And so what Keller's talking about, yeah, absolutely. I began to notice, he said, repurposed uh, church buildings all over the city. They were now condominiums, gyms, art galleries, coffee shops, pubs, and clubs, a trend that continued as my time in the city went on. In 2014, the New York Archdiocese of the Catholic Church announced that it was closing dozens of empty church buildings and hundreds of other Protestant congregations faced dwindling membership and were unable to maintain their church homes. In moving to New York City, I had entered a different world than the one I'd known in Virginia. Here, society was secularizing. Religion in general and Christianity in particular were in sharp decline. In 1989, my family and I started Redeemer, a new church in Manhattan. We faced cultural attitudes towards Christianity that ran from deep indifference to mockery or shouting out loud hostility. Meanwhile, in the middle of the country, churches continued to multiply and some grew to enormous sizes. Now, just a little comment there. I don't have statistics in front of me on this. Just my experience for years of living in evangelical Christianity and going to evangelical schools across the country and attending churches across the country. This it might be a little bit of an oversimplification. He's right. There is a big difference, and that needs to be examined. And I don't think he does that in the piece as far as what is the difference between rural Virginia and urban New York? What's the difference between the South and perhaps the Midwest and the Northeast and the Pacific Coast? There are cultural differences here that really need to be examined. And I know Keller and others who are in his same category in my mind, I guess, they have the same kind of thinking. They want to appeal to blue cities, to the Democrat voters who live there. They tend to have a certain amount of, let's just say, they look down. We'll put it that way. They look down a little bit. Is that fair to say? At rural conservative churches. And in particular, they look down at Bible Belt Christianity or cultural Christianity, if you want to call it that. And they think that cultural Christianity, as we'll see in this piece, is one of the reasons that blue cities and the people who live there are put off by Christianity. And, and so I just want to point out, Virginia is different than New York. He admits this. He talks about this. Rural Virginia or small town Virginia, different than urban New York. Why is that? That needs to be examined a little more. Because if you don't really have a good answer for that, then I don't think the, the rest of the plan is going to make much sense. Something he's saying is working in other places that wasn't working in New York. Now, he thinks he has the formula for what works in New York, but I just like to suggest to you, what about the environment of New York versus the environment of Virginia? Is there something in the water that allowed churches to flourish more or to attract more members or to open up, whereas they're closing in New York? Now, the other thing I want to just mention is that I have a hunch that a lot of these churches who that, that open because I think this trend has continued up until even the present in Bible Belt areas. My, the tendency is that 
not not for all of them, but many of them think they have a niche. They are going to reshuffle the deck and attract people from other churches. I mean, that's that's the church growth strategy that often works in those areas initially, because they have a different way of approaching church or a way generally that doesn't feel like church. It feels like something more fulfilling than a stuffy old church can give you. And so they put up their churches with you know, symbols that look like they could be fast food chain <laughs> symbols, uh, generally in strip malls, nothing against a strip mall, but I'm just saying it's, that's the, the goal. It's not, the goal isn't to get into a traditional church building. The goal is to stay in the strip mall type setting. Uh, of course, there won't, there's not going to be a graveyard there. There's no thought of that or having land because that doesn't fit the purpose of the, the churches that are going up. And so I, I wonder to some extent whether even in 1989, the churches Tim Keller's talking about that were going up were replacing churches of previous generations to some extent. And, and whether or not there was consolidation taking place, because that was taking place in every other arena. It was taking place in education. Uh, we see that in Christian education, especially these little Bible colleges dying, but you know, somewhere like a Liberty University, the enrollment's just busting at the seams. It, it's not like there's more people going to Christian colleges. It just means more people are traveling farther to go to a big Christian college. They're consolidating. Same thing that's happened in denominational life. The Southern Baptist Convention is now uh, exerting control. That's, that's what this whole Will McCraney case is about. These other smaller state conventions. And so that I'm wondering if that's partially what he's noticing here, but let's, let's keep going. Cause if we go at this rate and I keep interjecting, we're going to be here all day. What I've experienced in New York, he says for decades has now spread across the country. As of 2021, the number of religious nuns, people who don't identify with any established religion in the U S had grown to nearly 30% of the population while professing Christians constituted 63%, down from 75% only a decade ago. Pew Research recently projected the future of this trend in three of its four scenarios. The percentage of Christians plunges to less than half the population by 2070, and in none does the trend reverse and the church grow. Should we expect to see most church buildings in the country repurposed or torn down is it inevitable that we will become an ex-Christian society or could the church experience a renewal? And I, I would like to argue we're already in an ex-Christian society or a post-Christian society in most of the country. There, there is exceptions perhaps in some rural and small town areas in the heartland. And I've been to some of those places and it is a different world. There was a, a story now I'll probably remember for years that I have told, I think, before of going to Grant, Nebraska. And, um, and those, <laughs> I know the people that are there will probably be listening to this podcast, but it, it's a different world it, than so many other places. Very small town. COVID didn't really affect things all that much uh, because it was so small. And the school in the, lo the local public school isn't really all that bad. Christians send their kids to the local public school. And I remember, though, the story that I was going to tell is that um, I was at uh, a pastor's home there. And I just thought it was so interesting, the contrast. Um, his wife was talking about an issue going on in the school, and it was it was concerning for them. And I think it should have been concerning. It, it was, uh, I think, some play that was going to be performed, and, and it had a feminist theme to it. And I just remember thinking, though, wow, that must be so nice that that's, that's the issue you're concerned about. Because in my neck of the woods, 
oh my goodness, the issues that concern parents about sending kids to public school are about a thousand times more serious than that. And I probably don't need to go into details because since that time, I think some of the headlines have been made, but with some of the curriculum that's used, the violence on the bus, the violence in the schools, lack of control that the teachers have, the lack of learning that's going on, and the over-sexualization of these young children, it's, um, it's incredible. And there's horror stories I know about from the local area that I, I'm not free to disclose. But all that to say, I think there are areas where there's still somewhat of a cultural Christianity. Even if people aren't all Christian, they still have a respect for the Bible. They have a respect for Christianity. So Tim Keller is noticing this, noticing what's happened in New York City, and noticing that that's also making its way to other places. And he's right about that, especially urban areas. Why should anyone besides Christians like me care whether the church uh, revives? Many Christians would say the fate of the church is inconsequential to them. Others want very much to see the church continue to shrink. I believe both attitudes are mistaken. I don't, no, I'm not sure exactly who he would be thinking of in that second attitude he mentions. But he says many secular social theorists, including Emil Durkheim and Jonathan Haidt, do name, uh, to name two, show how religion makes contributions to society that cannot be readily supplied by other sources. Now, I want you... If you're listening to remember what we discussed not too long ago with the two episodes on Richard Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences, because little alarm bells should be going off in all your heads right now. What is he saying the benefit of the churches or the social benefit, I should say, of the churches here? He's, or is he justifying, this is the question perhaps to put it more clearly, is he justifying the existence of the church? We're making an argument for the flourishing and the success of the church based upon social value. The church contributes. They got soup kitchens. They offer people stability. They reinforce morals that we need. Now, those things are true. But is social utility, utilitarianism, social utility the argument we need to make first in other words does that need to be when we step out into the secular arena to argue for the church which keller's doing he's doing this in the atlantic it's not a christian magazine it's hostile to christianity i would say when we step into that arena does the first foot forward that we put down need to be social utility or does it need to be Repent, believe, eternity is coming. The church is the place you go to, the recognizable location with its steeple and its cross at the top, where you know if you need to get in touch with your creator, that's the place to go. They know how to do it. They know how to help you accomplish that. They can give you spiritual direction. Is the church primarily spiritual or is it a social organization that has a social utility? And which one's more important? And so, so you, you see where I'm going with this. Richard Weaver talked about this, not in regards to the church necessarily, but just in regards to everything in society, that this utilitarian impulse 
that makes everything contingent, its existence, its purpose contingent on some kind of a temporary social utility erodes the very foundation for society itself, but our faith specifically, because if we don't have transcendentals, as he calls them, or these objective absolutes, these, these things that we know are true, that will continue into the world to come, not just, they, they don't just exist in this world temporarily. If meaning and purpose are found outside of ourselves in that transcendent reality, then the church has a greater purpose, far greater than any temporary social utility. But if we hang the church's purpose or it's the benefit the church has on whatever it can do for society in, a, in very tangible ways, then we are ignoring and I think eroding the main function of the church. And I'll wrap it up, my, my point on this, with asking you to consider whether or not the apostles, and you could even throw in there other, the church fathers, the reformers, you can put in the Puritans, really any group, Orthodox group, ask yourself whether or not that was what they primarily led with when they were talking about the importance of the church. Or was it a call to ordering yourself to heaven, to transcendent standards, repenting, submitting, and then ordering? Um, I would like to submit to you, to them, the spiritual world was much more important than the temporal world. And this temporal world was a preparation for that spiritual world. Yes, it had meaning. But the question that I have is, which one is more important and which one does the church, which purpose does the church serve more? What's its job? What's its function? What's its telos? All right. Well, we have 97 people streaming right now. And uh, we have a, a number of comments now coming in. And uh, we'll continue that uh, as we go. One person asked, do they offer people stability or eternal security? That's a good way to put it, I suppose. But And they are connected. Um, but let's keep reading Keller here. Because like I said, I'm, I'm, I, I may not finish this article. <laughs> so he talks about these social theorists and how they recognized that there was contributions to society that the church made. One of them, cultural unity. Durkheim argued in the 1890s requires a conscious collective, a set of shared moral norms that bind us together in a sustained way. These norms are understood to be grounding in something sacred and transcendent, not created by culture. Now, it's interesting because he Keller's acknowledging, yeah, of course there's transcendence, but so he acknowledges that's there, but he's still, his first foot forward is still social utility, right? Like, it doesn't really matter even what happens. Like, I'm not saying what happens on earth doesn't matter, but I'm saying in comparison to eternity, it is of little value what happens on this earth. Now, you have to hear me correctly here because I know that there's some of you who are going to say, wait a minute, John, hold on, hold on. You're, what are you, a pietist? Are you saying that this life doesn't matter? We should, no, 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 I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm trying to make the same argument that Paul made, that it, com compared to knowing Christ, everything else was a, a rubbish heap to him. It's not that those things aren't important. It's not that those things, that even the gifts we enjoy, that God's given us, that we thank him for, aren't important things, aren't from his hand. Not saying that at all. What I'm saying, though, is that when you when you look at the grand scheme, when you look at eternity from that perspective, 
And let's say the church for hypothetically did not serve a social utility. It, it wasn't, it was a net negative. And the Atlantic said, you know, we're not going to let T Keller write these pieces anymore. The church isn't good for society. It just reinforces bigotry. It's terrible. I mean, that's probably where most people at the Atlantic are, are anyway. So it's the fact you're not going to see articles like this from Keller. I don't think for a, I, I, this is the last dying breath of an acceptable version of evangelicalism, I think. So I, I don't expect to see articles like this for much longer, but that said, imagine that that's the posture now that the world takes, that there is nothing that can justify the existence of the church, no matter how many people you feed or clothe, because you're bigots. You, you have a hatred towards LGBT people, for example, let's say they think. You know what? Even if that is true, and it's not, but even if it were, the, you, the, the reason for the church, the purpose of the church, the function of the church is undeterred it's still needed because it's about eternity more than the the ride that we're taking towards eternity in this temporal world that's all i'm saying so he recognizes transcendence but its transcendence now serves this immediate need these norms are understood to be grounded in something sacred and transcendent not created by culture durkheim recognized the difficulties secular cultures have in cultivating moral beliefs that are strong and unquestionable enough to unite people Consider the evolution of America in 1985, the book Habits of Heart, the so in, in that book, the sociologist Robert Bella and his co-authors showed that the social history of the United States made it the most individualistic culture in the world. American culture elevates the interests of the individual over those of the family, community, and nation. Now, we need to do an essay. I've had it on my list for a while. We did Ideas Have Consequences by Richard Weaver already, but there's an essay he wrote called Two Types of American Individualism. And I encourage you to go read it. I'm going to talk about it at some point in more detail. But to summarize, in that particular article, which I think is brilliant, Weaver compares two different kinds of individualism. And, and the term can be applied to both. And they're both American. One's more Northeastern. One's more, I would say, Southern. And in Southern individualism, there's an understanding that when you're born, you are born with obligations into a community, into a family, uh, you have the local fire department, for example, protecting your home. This is something that you were born into. And to pay taxes and to later on perhaps volunteer, uh, th these are part of your obligations to society. Now, it's not society in the abstract, though. And that's one of the key differences between this and socialism or some of these other schemes. It's, it's the tangible people that you are living in, in a, living with in a local community. And so your individual rights are protected and guarded, but it doesn't mean that it takes away the social obligation you have. And I think the main, the main component of this is that society itself breaks down not into the individual so much as it does the family. That's the building block. And the individual has rights uh, that need to be protected that government shall not infringe upon. But we recognize and our institutions recognize that it's really the family that's the building block, that's the starting point, that's the foundation. In contrast, he talked about this um, idea that the transcendentalists in the Northeast developed about individualism, like Walden Pond type stuff, where you go into nature and you have no obligations upon you. And so if that's the case, it's kind of like Rousseau's ideas, really. If that's the case, in nature, then why, when you're living in a community, do you have obligations? You shouldn't have to pay um, 
taxes for things that you don't approve of, for example, right? And so, so this becomes uh, a a contest. And I would say that today, in the conservative mu- movement, if you want to call it that, you see this because the left is is socialist at this point. God is government. It's society's an abstraction and it's totalitarian. And so the individual gets swallowed up, right? Um, however, it's there. There is this libertarian bent, and it, and you see it on the right. You see it to, on social issues to some extent on the left. That it comes up every time abortion comes up. That issue, and they they want to um, even say things like prostitution should be legal. All, all as long as you're not the principle is non-aggression, and as, as long as you're not hurting your neighbor, then we can have these principles, right? That's, I would say, the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. And then you have, of course, uh, the more social conservatives. I would be more in that social conservative, uh, I guess, category. And we think that those things are bad for tangible local communities. And that and there's a reason that those things, those kinds of things have been discouraged or punished for a long time. And so we think that there is a place for the um, not a big totalitarian government to come in, but for your local organic here, we're thinking organic, your local communities to put brakes on some of these things. But we also root rights and responsibilities. It's not rooted in an autonomous man, right? That, and that's maybe the key difference. We root them in responsibilities from a natural order that God has set up. Government can't take away the responsibility you have to fulfill certain obligations. So when when Keller talks about Robert Bella here, and I know I read some Robert Bella because Robert Bella, he was universally used pretty much by people like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider and the West Gramberg Michelson and all these, these guys who were Richard Mao, uh, early progressive evangelicals in the 1970s. Richard Mao and those guys love to cite Robert Bella because Robert Bella was saying, you know what? There's two kinds of Christianities. There's this American Christianity and it's, you know, really individualistic and it supports the deep or we call it the deep state now, I guess the, uh, at that time, uh, the, um, oh man, I'm trying, I'm blanking on what Eisenhower called it. The, uh, military industrial complex. There you go. And, uh, it supports wall street and, it's about making money, and, and that's one kind of Christianity, and that's the individualist Christianity. That's what Robert Bella thought. It's all about serving the individual and what the individual wants and needs. And uh, and then there's the, the Christianity, though, the real biblical one, and we've left that behind. And Tim Keller is picking this up, just like those guys in the early 70s picked the, the same thing up. Keller's picking it up. And and the individualism, I think, this is the thing that about Robert Bella, is he critiques individualism, but he critiques a, I think, a more a libertarian kind of individualism. And so it sets up, it's, and socialist-minded people or communitarians tend to do this, where they kind of set up a false dichotomy where it's like, well, you're either this individual who's atomized and you are a law to yourself and you can make selfish decisions and who cares what it does to other people, or, or, you can be with us. And, and then they propose their solution. And it's like, well, that's America was founded by people who believed that the building block, it just, it was assumed they didn't have to argue it. That the building block was the family, was the church, that these certain institutions that were part of the order God set up 
were already present when you were born into a community. That's not that option's not on the table. And and um and so you know you see the same thing I think picked up by others uh today. Uh the rise and fall of the modern self kind of tries to make this argument that it's the individualism of America that's led to all these problems. And again, I'm gonna go back to what kind of individualism? What do you mean by individualism? Do you mean individual rights? Because that's not the problem here. If you're talking about rights rooted in responsibilities like the founders did, what kind of individualism? So maybe we'll talk about that more, but I've waxed very long about this. And we have 135 people streaming now. And oh, <laughs> oh do we have a eschatology debate going on in the chat? I hope not. <laughs> Tread carefully, postmill folks out here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you, I'm not going to get into that in this episode. <laughs> this it's, um, I, I suppose I can see a connection, but it's not exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, and, and Keller, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's on millennial. Maybe someone can put in the chat whether they think Tim Keller is on millennial. All right. He cites Robert Bella. American culture elevates the interests of the individual over those of the family, community and nation. Yet. And, and as if that's American, as if that's, you know, yet for two centuries, Americans religious devotion counterbalanced this individualism with denunciations of self-centeredness and calls to love your neighbor. The church demanded charity and compassion for the needy. It encouraged young people to confine sexual expression to marriage, and it encouraged spouses to stick to their vows. So notice the argument Keller's making. He's saying without the church, you don't have any of this stuff. Society's going to spiral into chaos without the church. So you, you do need the church for some kind of order, right? Atlantic, right, guys? Like we, we do have, there is some purpose here. We got to uphold some kind of standard. Um, now, you know, sexual expression to marriage, uh, It'd be nice if he said heterosexual marriage, <laughs> monogamous, fidelity. I don't know, but we'll we'll just leave it at that. Bella wrote that American individualism now largely freed from the counterbalance of religion is headed towards social fragmentation, economic inequality, family breakdown and many other dysfunctions. Now, so, so the, the idea is that there, the church is a dam and behind the dam is this water that's rising and this water is putting more pressure on the dam and it's individualism is that water and it's going to flood the town. It's going to destroy it. And as long as the church was there, it could hold back the individualism. But now that now that the church is gone, individualism is going to take everything out as if the evil is rooted in that we experience in society is rooted in some kind of individualism. And, and that's, I think, what I would quibble with. I don't think, it, it, first of all, what kind of individualism are you talking about? But secondly, it's, it, it's not so much individualism uh, be, because even today you can recognize that this whole idea that race is a social construct, gender is a social, everything's a social construct. That's not individualistic. That's very, that, that fits into some kind of a communitarian model where, and, and Keller's even making this argument from a posture of this communitarian, utilitarian um, uh, posture that the church serves a social function. And so it seems like to justify any institution or anything you want to do, you you have to somehow show how this is going to benefit society in some way. And of course, benefiting society is not a, a Christian understanding of benefiting society. Uh, benefiting society that um, we could overlap. It could be you know feeding poor people and so forth. But now it's expanding opportunities for equality, equity, or equity, diversity, inclusion. It's uh, it, you don't even have to do anything. You just virtue signal about <laughs> how uh, we're going to have... Uh, we're going to have a, 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 a an event and we're going to make sure that 
everyone knows that we need to value diversity here. And that's viewed as now your, your institution, your organization is, is all good. It's benefiting society. So it, that's, I think that's what's happened is that we have this utopian scheme where we want equity, diversity, inclusion. We want heaven on earth. And the way to get there is to benefit society in these ways, to progress the societal evolution. And that's why all these corporations buy into this. It benefits them. And then you get an email from them and I know you bought shoes from us 12 years ago, but we just want to know, we want you to know that we really value women. It's like, why are they telling me this? I just want shoes. Well, they're telling you that because they get brownie points because then you'll think you're a good person for going and shopping there because some of that money is going to benefit society. And that's what benefiting society is. So the real root issue here is we've ignored God, guys. It's not individualism. We've shut God out of it. We've said an internal state of rewards and punishments where a creator judges us according to his law and we get to live with him in uh, paradise if we uh, repent and put our trust in Christ. But if we don't and we die in our sin, we go to a place of everlasting punishment. Boom, let's get rid of that. That idea is antiquated. That's archaic. We want to focus on the here and now, this world. Let's build the Tower of Babel, guys. Let's do that. That sounds a lot better than after we die or Christ comes back. Now I'm getting an eschatology. <laughs> um, we're going to have some kind of final state that we need to prepare for. No, let's not prepare for that. Let's prepare for socially, um, social equity, diversity, and inclusion, heaven on earth, here and now, Tower of Babel. That's what's going on. And, and to blame individualism, right? That's the same boogeyman the left has. It's individualism that's keeping us from achieving a society of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So this reorients the church. Now the church can, if, if it serves that temporary function, that purpose of societal evolution towards this consummation in the here and now, the church can now be valid. It can now serve a social function. People in the Atlantic can say, you know, church isn't so bad. There's a, there's a reason for the church. Maybe I'll go back to church because, man, I really want this heaven on earth thing. And they're not thinking that maybe in those terms in their mind. But you know, we, we really want society to progress towards this perfection of some kind, this, this great uh, time when there won't be wars. And there, you know, the, the things that parallel the heavenly state really is what we're going towards. And if the church can do that here on earth and make things better, then maybe that's why I'll go to church instead of, man, go to church because you need God. You are sinful and you need re to repent. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You need to live for him because there's a day of judgment coming. You see the difference? At the local level, Keller says, churches provide community and support to people in their congregations who lack strong family ties. Or other kinds of emotional and social support. They also serve neighbors who do not attend church, particularly in poor neighborhoods. More than 20 years ago, University of Pennsylvania, there was a study of Philadelphia's congregations that concluded that congregations are vital to the social fabric of Philadelphia. They take a major role in caring for the needs of people in the neighborhoods. The study authors estimated the replacement cost of churches to communities and government would be about $250 million annually in 2001 dollars in the Philadelphia metro area alone. Now, I'm not going to contest this. This is probably all true. Uh, and I would agree. While a revival of the church would benefit society, that will never happen if the church thinks of itself as just another social service agency. Christians seek spiritual renewal of the church, not because they see religion as having social utility. Now, this is interesting, guys. Pay attention here. Nor because they want to shore up their own institutions. First and foremost, Christianity helps society 
because its metaphysical claims are true. They are not true because Christianity helps society. When Christians lose sight of this, the church's power and durability is lost. Now, this is what I want you to notice here. And this is, I think, what the Keller defenders are going to hear. They're going to go to this paragraph and be like, wait, hold on, John. You're talking all about this social utility stuff. Keller right here says that Christians go to church, though, because they believe it's true. That's and, and I, that's what he should have led with, though, is what I'm saying. This is in the Atlantic. And he's in, in, in it's he's what he's not saying is that um, Christians go to church because of that. And you should, too, because you're under judgment. Right. There's no there's no sense of this trans this transcendence. Is it does it apply to everyone? Right. Or is it? Well, the Christians who go serve a societal function and, you know, whatever logic they use, if it's truth. OK, it's truth. But, hey, it benefits us. Right. That's that's. That you, you have to, to look at it in the category he's putting it in here. Is he putting it in in the category of truth is the reason for church and the and these social things are second to that. And you should come to church. Every Everyone, the church, if it dies, that's bad, not just because those society is going to spin out of control, but because we have a problem. Judgment day is coming. It's fine if Christians use that logic, at least. The understanding that truth is why they go to church. But what about for the broader society? What about for the people reading the Atlantic? Why should they value church? Why should they be concerned? So can Christianity grow again? Yes, it can. Even the Pew Report concedes that events outside the study's model could lead to a revival of Christianity. The events mentioned include immigration patterns or religious innovations. I would call that last paragraph, by the way, that we just read, that that's the safety. Keller, I notice in because uh, I've read so much Keller now. Keller, when he talks about the Trinity and he gives you like her, her, heresy, like or you know hell or sin, he gives you things that are either heterodox or they're just not biblical. He, he when you're reading through, you're like, okay, ninety percent of this bad, 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 and then he has like this safety that he he will put in there that everyone who wants to defend Keller can cling to to say, wait, no, Keller said this. He's orthodox. He he are. Right, because Keller has two positions on everything, it seems. That's why. And it's brilliant. It's just so brilliant because it's he moves the needle, not just to the left politically. He moves the needle, uh, I think, towards secularism, even though his whole shtick is that he's trying to stop secularism. But he he reorients the church. And this is what Redeemer Presbyterian Church actually has been doing for years. It's in their uh, their statement. Uh, if, what they recite, I, I think it's their church motto or slogan. I forget what they call it, but uh, they they have a statement where they say, uh, or a purpose statement, that's what it is, that where uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church serves the city of New York, and it, and it has the spiritual language, but then it says, uh, it actually specifically uses the term social justice. We're here to promote social justice. So that's the direction Keller is reorienting things and taking the church from this institution of heaven to an institution that now, well, it's of heaven, but it's also this institution that serves a social function, social utility, and that becomes part of the telos, and you have competing teloses. If you want to know more about this, go to the episode I did where I talk about Keller's uh, Keller and the church's mission. I, th I don't remember what it's called. Uh, I think it's called Engaging Tim Keller on the Mission of the Church. It's on this YouTube channel. It was released about a month ago, and I go into fine detail about this. But that's coming out even in this article. He says, first, as I see it, growth can happen if the church learns how to speak compellingly to non-Christian people for a millennium. 
Western institutions instill the most citizens Christian beliefs about morality and sex, God and the sin in the afterlife. If non-Christian people entered a church, what they heard was likely not strange or offensive to them. That has changed. But the church has not yet learned how to communicate to outsiders. As a result, most evangelical churches can reach only shrinking and aging enclaves of socially conservative people. But change is possible in our church in Manhattan. So he's going to bring his church as the example for what to do going forward. Over the years, we learned to reach young secular progressives by adopting the way St. Paul told the good news to nonbelievers in his own day as described in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, which, uh, if memory serves me, I think that is where that's where Paul is saying we preach Christ crucified. So it's I don't know, this is a generic verse that or it's it's general. I don't know how it specifically every church should be preaching Christ crucified. He affirmed their best aspirations and longings, yet challenged the inadequate ways in which they were seeking to realize these hopes and redirected them towards Jesus Christ. Now I want to go I have a Bible in front of me. Let's just can we take a peek at that real quick? While I'm turning there, I would like to uh, call your attention to the fact that the vast majority of Christians' missions agencies and missionaries sent and Bible translation organizations exist where? In the United States, Great Britain, throughout history. I mean, even today, it's not even close. It's, it's like by hundreds of thousands of missionaries, it is the United States has more than the next, the number two. I don't know if that's South Korea or where that would be, but I mean, it's, it's not even close. So th this whole notion that we, we, man, these Western Christians, these Americans, they can't speak to foreign peoples, man, they've dedicated more resources and time and effort to reach and reaching foreign peoples than probably any other people group in the history of the world. History of the world, even now, hundreds of languages, the scripture has been translated into them because of people where? People in the Western world, people in the United States. So it's it's a little insulting for Keller to make this point, but let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and just read. Uh, he cites verses 22 and 24. I'm going to read a little before that. Uh, we're going to start at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, uh, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. All right, I'm going to stop there. What is he talking about? He affirmed their best aspirations and longings? I'm not seeing this in the text. Maybe someone can put in the, maybe I'm missing something. Someone put in the live chat. If you think I'm missing something, you know, what in the world? Um, okay. Uh, yet challenge the inadequate ways in which they were seeking to realize their hopes and redirected them towards Jesus Christ. 
I guess because he's acknowledging that the Greeks searched for wisdom and the Jews sought for signs. I, I guess that's what he's saying, that that, was, that statement means that signs and wisdom are both good things. Uh, it, it, this is very weird, actually, because what he's saying is we didn't do where he's contrasting Paul. That's what Paul's doing. He's like, we didn't do what the Jews or the Greeks did here. You know, the Jews, the, the, it was a stumbling block and the Greeks foolishness. There was, there's no affirming their aspirations and longings in that. It's, it's literally, we're contradicting them. We're giving them something that doesn't fit into their uh, paradigm here. And it's to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, those who are called will hear the message. Those who are called. Where do you focus on, if you're a pastor and you're in ministry, who do you focus on? Now, in evangelism, you, you do focus on those who are not saved. But what is the purpose of even that? It's to reach those who are being called by God. God's seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. God's the one that's building his church. God's the one that's using a means. You're the means. Okay? So your, your efforts, your resources are directed towards who? People who are being called. What does the passage say? Those who are being called are going to hear th this message. And this message isn't unique to Redeemer Presbyterian Church, guys. This is the message of any Orthodox body, even remotely Orthodox, that Christ, that, well, what it says here, Christ crucified. The gospel. What is what's the significance of that? We're sinful. Christ came. He took our sin. He paid the price. He made it so we can be in a right relationship with our, our heavenly Father. Keller's whole spin on this makes no sense to me. All right. Well, I'm going to take a little break here. We have 148 people streaming and people are lighting up the live chat. Uh, let me just read a few of these comments as we go through. The church is the bride of Christ. God has already specified the work of believers. Go into all the world and preach repentance of sins and reconciliation to God through faith in Christ. Amen. Judy Roach said that. Uh, someone did confirm that Keller is amillennial, but he is not reformed in the historical sense. Okay, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I, I figured he was amillennial. Um, Andrew Close says, Evangel uh, evangelism should not be directed or structured based on the proclivities of the dinner. I, I think the sinner is what he means. but on the one that saves utopian social utility as an end diminishes the gospel bingo couldn't have said it better myself that that's bingo right i mean what what would this approach do in new york city i know what it has done because i know several people who have attended redeemer presbyterian church there's someone in my church right now who attended redeemer presbyterian church remember i don't live all that far from new york city so we get people that have gone to redeemer presbyterian church some that have gone there for years and I'm going to just tell you the report that I get from everyone that I know personally who's gone there. They say that it's pretty shallow, that the people who go there, um, that trying to form relationships with actually solid, serious Christians is very challenging at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Now, I'm the messenger. I'm not even going to, I'm not standing by that 100% like, across the board, that's everyone's experience. But I know the people I know who've been there, that's what they've said. And it's there are people who come, and I think even if you go to their website, it, it, there has a whole section for seekers uh, who are looking for something more, because let's face it, this I, I preached about this actually yesterday in church from John chapter 16, verses th uh, 32 and 33. This world 
stinks as far as there's no purpose or meaning and you should be depressed. Uh, Jesus says, even in John uh, 14, you know, my peace, I give to you, not as the world gives the peace, the world gives, isn't going to satisfy you. And so Christians have something unique. And I think there are, there are people who see that or see at least that they need something. And um, I noticed this at the County fair last year, we have an evangelism booth and the millennials tended to be a little more hardened. The Gen Zers though, uh, and I think some millennials are like this as well, are like, you know, I'll go to the Christian booth, see what they have to say, and then uh, maybe I'll go get my palm read. And then maybe I'll go. They don't have any, they're not like the hardened atheist of 15 years ago, the Richard Dawkins fan. They're kind of like, yeah, I'll see what works for me. Spirit, I need a spiritual something. I mean, I am a spiritual being. I acknowledge that. They won't say they're religious, right? They're spiritual. And uh, maybe Christianity is that thing, but they're shopping. And so I don't know the stats and I don't even know how you would come up with this information, but Redeemer Presbyterian Church, if, if what I've been told about it is true, there's a lot of people like that there who, who are shopping, who are curious, but who aren't necessarily serious and many of them not necessarily even repentant and got born again, put it that way. And part of the reason is because the church accommodates to that. You There isn't the pressure. And Kim Keller was the one and his wife to introduce the living out church audit for LGBT people to make your church say a safe place for them. I mean, they want to make sinners feel so safe and so loved and so affirmed and whatever that you don't have that kind of uh, pressure that exists or that, Hey, judgment day is coming. You need to repent. And if you listen to a lot of some Kim Keller sermons, you're not going to find that call to repentance. Um, Yes, I know people are going to cite for me the the few times where uh, the you know he he says something or he he shares but the gospel. But I'm telling you the way he preaches in general, it's a very passive <laughs> approach. We'll put it that way to proclaiming the gospel, if at all. All right, so um, so to he, he gets First Corinthians one totally messed up here, totally messed up. Second, the church in the U.S. Uh, can grow again if it learns how to unite justice and righteousness. Here we go. This is what I told you before. Church needs to learn how to unite justice and righteousness. If Christians go to church because it's true, and if that's the reason for church, it's true, then why? What's this? Why do we have to unite justice and righteousness? What does that mean? And we know with Keller, it, it's social justice here. He says, I have heard African American pastors use this terminology to describe the historic ministry of the Black Church. By righteousness, they meant that the church has maintained its traditional beliefs in the authority of the Bible, morality, and sexuality. I'm going to stop right there. Really? Really? The black church has maintained its traditional beliefs in morality and sexuality? One question for you. Does the black church have a problem with supporting candidates who endorse abortion? Does the black church have a problem with soft peddling or ignoring the sin of murder in abortion? Do the members who attend black churches, um, are there higher rates among them of abortion? Now, the social justice where you say, yeah, that's because of poverty. Okay, whatever the cause, guys, I don't buy that necessarily, but whatever the cause, I'm sure there's correlation there. What is the church's role in, I don't know, the, the issue of murder? 
if we're going to be prophetic, we stand up against it, right? Keller's using the black church as a contrast. He's saying that because most churches in the United States are not black churches, and black populations, 16% of the population in the United States, most churches aren't, aren't black churches. So when you think of the American church, you're thinking mostly of evangelicals. And evangelicals in the sociological sense now has come to mean uh, traditions that are mainly, I guess, I'm talking about sociologists here, not my own. I have my own scheme in my own mind, but they would they would say that the evangelicals um, are, are those who came out of tradition, European traditions. And during the Second Great Awakening, especially created a form of popular religion that outpaced the mainline denominations. That's usually what they're talking about. And they tend to vote more conservative and all of those other political ramifications. But Keller, Keller is, I think, doing a contrast. He's saying that there's that, what the sociologists call the evangelicals. And then there's the black church. And the black church gets this right, guys. You need to take a cue from them. By righteousness, they meant that the church has maintained its traditional belief. I just like, I, you know, because I there's there's some um, black churches near me. All right. And, and I know some people who have gone to them. And uh, in fact, I met one of the local black pastors the other day. I was at a restaurant and a really nice guy taught me how to tie a bow tie. Really had an impeccable bow tie, I have to say. They are extremely political. All right. So MLK Day is just that that's like it's like bigger than easter it's like it's the thing uh you go into these churches i know um at the particular church i'm thinking of during the election of 20, 20 2008 and then in 2012 i mean just posters of obama right i mean i don't even know of the most hard right conservative evangelical church that would have a poster of trump right but but that's kind of an accepted thing and um, and I've been, and I'm not saying all black churches are like this, by the way, there's, there's one I know I, I attended in Virginia that I loved. And I, 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 I remember telling my wife, cause we were at that point we were already moving, but, um, I told her, I said, look, I could, I could see myself there. I could submit to these guys. I could grow here. So I'm not saying that all, but I, in general, and this is what Keller's speaking in his generalities, the black church hasn't really been great on one of I'm going to say the most, it's not even one of, it is the most morally reprehensible practices of our time politically, which is abortion and giving political sanction to it, legal sanction. He's saying the black church calls individuals to be born again through the faith in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. By justice, they mean that the church has an activist stance against all forms of oppression. So that's what we need, I guess. We need to take a cue from them and have this activist stance. Now, I'm going to say this too. Um, I don't have I don't have the stats in front of me. I just read an article though recently that was talking about how the black church, that's their their term in the United States, Afri historical African American churches, how they are losing members at a very fast pace. In fact, New York City was the example given in the article that in black neighborhoods churches are closing at higher rates than in other neighborhoods in New York City, where Keller is at. So I'm, I'm just going to say this. If the black church is the template because they're into social justice, so we got to take a cue from them. How come it's not helping them? 
how come the trend is holding for them as well? They're, they're also losing members. Could it be that there's something else going on? And the only reason Keller would make this argument, again, is because the church as a social utility. Church as a social utility. That's That becomes the competing purpose, and it swallows up the other purpose and becomes the only purpose eventually. White Protestant churches in America tend to pick one or the other. Liberal mainline Protestantism stresses justice, but is largely jettisoned ancient affirmations of the Christian creed, such as pre-existence and divinity of Jesus, bodily resurrection, authority of the Bible. Evangelicalism stretches righteousness and traditional values, but many congregations are indifferent or even hostile towards work against injustice. However, if the church at large could combine this, here it is. Here's the thesis. Here's, you know, flashing red sign. This is what Keller wants us to do. If the church at large could combine these two ideas the way that the black church has, it can begin to rebuild both credibility and relevance, rebutting the charge that it is merely another political power broker. Keller thinks the stumbling block that the world thinks prevents them from going to church that is off-putting, right? It's not the it's not what Paul said. Paul said that what was the stumbling block? Christ crucified. What's the stumbling block to Keller? People thinking that the church is just another political power broker. People who resent that conservative evangelicals vote against things like abortion. People who don't like that, it's off-putting. I don't like it when they vote for those Republicans. Those people that care a little bit more, at least, or at least offer you a seat at the table to be concerned about biblical values. We don't like them. So take a page from the, uh, take a cue from the page of the black church, and you will once again regain your credibility somehow. That, I have no words. A church that unites justice and righteousness does not fit with the left on abortion and sexual ethics or with the right on race and justice. Instead, it is a community that addresses the timeless longings of all people for meaning, hopes, love, and salvation. So that's the ideal church. And we have it at Redeemer Presbyterian. Third, he says, the church in the U.S. can grow again if it embraces the global and multi-ethnic character of Christianity. By 2050, nearly one in five Americans will be foreign-born, and these immigrants will likely come from more religious parts of the world. Immigrants bring their faith with them. Christianity in East Asia grew from 1.2% in 1970 to 10.5% in 2020. In turn, Chinese and Korean immigrant communities have started as many as hundreds of churches in New York alone since the late 1970s. Now, I have to ask a question. Those Korean churches in New York City, are they they segregated at all? I mean, like, uh, is it mainly Korean or... When they started their churches, did they make it like comfortable for everyone to be there? Or is that just something for people who are natives who live in the United States and have for generations, let's say, is that they're the only ones that have that rule? I'm just curious. Protestantism, he says, in Latin America has also grown explosively, particularly through the Pentecostal and evangelical denominations. And these Christians are coming to the U.S., the combination of secular Americans having fewer children and the increasing immigration of religious people leads some observers to argue that secularization is likely to stall in America by 2050. This reminds me of, uh, there was someone, I think it was like the guy, Joel Berry, was it? I think it was Joel Berry, the guy who's like an editor with the Babylon Bee. But he he posted something, I think two weeks ago, where he talked about all these illegal migrants are coming over the border. So what we ought to do is we, we ought to, the, the church or Christians, uh, 
maybe he was saying conservatives. I, and I'm trying to remember, was it, cons- I guess it was conservative Christians, I think something like that. They, they need to uh, get out there and assimilate these people. And, uh, and, and he got raked over coals for it. Um, there was, there was articles about it and stuff. And, and it was like, you know, how about we stop illegal immigration? Right. And rather than giving an incentive for more illegal immigration. And w- one of the things though, I think he was pointing out was this point Keller's making that these people are hardworking. They're, they're Catholic mostly, but they're, they're, they're not secular. So we have more in common with them. And in some extent, to some extent, I suppose there may be some truth to that. Now, the majority of them overwhelmingly vote for Democrats, though. They vote for the party that wants to murder children, so or may at least keep it legal. So um, so how's that working out for you, right, uh, on a political level? The, the people who are secular, who want to be in charge, are gaining ascendancy despite these populations uh, and because of these populations, to some extent, coming in. And, and that, I think that has to do with priority to some extent uh, that I mean, I, and I understand to some extent, too. And you're coming into this country and you come in illegally and you just you want a better life. And who's going to give you the freebies? Right. The Republicans aren't as good at being Santa Claus. So that, that tends to, I think, to determine the vote. And, and I have family in Southern California. I'm originally from Los Angeles. That's where I was born. Go back there all the time. And it's a sanctuary city. And I just just tell you from experience I have, which extends through uh, the relatives I have out there that what I just said is hundred percent true. That is how they vote. Uh, in fact, there was the guy who tried to, the, the, the Republican party doesn't even use the same strategies anymore to try to get in mayor uh, for Los Angeles because they know a Democrat's going to win. So like, let, let's run another Democrat, switch parties to run Democrats. So we can try to get someone who's halfway sane in office. I mean, that's how bad it is there. Anyhow. Um, He's saying, though, he's already implied that there's a lack of sensitivity that the evangelical, the white evangelical church has, despite all the missionaries it sends and so forth to foreign populations, and that uh, we need to just embrace this multi-ethnic character. We're just not doing that. And, you know, I would argue that actually white Protestant churches in the United States have probably embraced this better than almost any population in history. And, and, and of course, the circumstances are pretty extreme as far as the extent to which people are pouring in over the border every day and uh, the unlimited immigration we have. So we've endured social changes very quickly. And have churches always done the perfect things? No, not at all. But that said, um, I mean, I know the church that I attend, we've had a demographic change since I've grown up. And and the church looks a lot different. It's it's a, a lot of uh, Latinos, a lot of um, black people now, uh, a lot of the people who had lived in the area who were either of Irish descent or Italian descent. They moved down south now. And so there, there's a huge replacement at the church I attend. I love the church I attend. I love the people that go there. I'm friends with with uh, with many people who, let's just say, don't look like me. And that's the church. And we've adapted very well. And I know other churches in the area. One church has had a big problem I know of because of a language barrier they they've the, the aging population uh the of people who speak english are dying off and the people who are replacing them speak spanish so you have a church now that has to have a spanish translation going on and the pastor has to say something in english and then say something in spanish and, and you end up with two churches and so that has shown me that you know there is a reason for sometimes especially along linguistic lines and sometimes even, I think, cultural lines 
there's a reason people tend to uh, birds of a feather flock together. They're, they, there's all kinds of social things that are playing into this. Even things like how you approach dating and courtship and how you uh, think about manners when you uh, enter someone's home. And I mean, there's all these causes for offense that exist when you take people with very different understandings and merge them together. And so um, I don't have a problem with there being a Korean church down the street uh, that, you know, the hope would be that there's assimilation going on. And so the children and the grandchildren can integrate uh, more into uh, a, a community that speaks English. But but initially, especially, I don't, I don't see why that's that's normal. That's logical. And if you're going to hold on to some of the, those traditions, that's going to continue to some extent. There's nothing in scripture that says any of that is sin. But I would just say in general that white evangelical churches have been very welcoming for the most part. Now, you're going to some people are going to come up with the examples of where this didn't take place. And I'm sure there's many of them. I'm saying in general, in my experience, at least what I've seen is uh, I keep hearing about this boogeyman of these really intolerant places that don't accept people who look different. And I'm like, where? Where? I mean, middle of Iowa, because the only option there is German in some towns or Dutch. You don't have like how you're how's your church going to be diverse now when people come and they're they're different than you. Hopefully you are evangelizing them and that is going to create eventually you are going to have people in your church that uh, are going to infuse the, the flavor of their culture into the church. And that can be a beautiful thing if done in a Christian manner. But uh, but Keller has this idea that white Protestant churches are just they're dying because they're not embracing all these people. It's a failure to embrace all the people coming into the United States that's causing their death. I would just say, if they're so religious, as he's, as he's saying, if they're so um, sharing in traditional values, then why don't they, some of them do, but why, why don't they on a mass level have churches set up then? Uh, why don't they form churches when they come across the border and then uh, act in a way that parallels the way that the white Protestants are acting as far as their habits in voting and upholding Christian morality, right? The, the blame is not is is totally put on white Protestants for this. And I'm just saying, why? There's no justification for it. There's no reason for it. Okay, uh, let's see. <laughs> All right, we have a lot of people lighting up the comment section here. Um, for Tim Keller, the church is a tool for political aims. That's bad. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. All right, let's let's keep going here. Established white majority denominations often welcome ethnic congregations in order to grow their numbers, but don't always open the doors of power and leadership to them. So here we go. Even if you assimilate, then you're still not doing enough unless you allow them, I guess, people who are foreigners who have come in to be pastors and leaders in the church. By the way, that process takes time. I just got to tell you, that process takes time. Even with someone who lives half a mile down the road, when they show up at your church, even if They've been to seminary and they are spiritually mature. It takes time to integrate them. It takes time to get to know them. There's a vetting process that takes place. There's experiences you need to have with that person before allowing them to come into leadership. And that, I think, becomes more pronounced when you have someone coming from another country where there's language barriers and cultural barriers. And I mean, I'm not saying it has to be that way in every circumstance, but in general, that's just the way it is. Um. The natural leaders in a community are the people who have established themselves theirs, there for a period of years and generally generations in some places. 
there's a respect that comes when you've been stewarding the land, helping the families uh, in the community that's been there for generations and your grandparents have done it. And there, there's something about that that prepares you to have a role in leadership, to have some credibility. When you're a complete newcomer, you're a blank slate. No one knows where you came from exactly. It takes you time. It takes you time. And I'm saying this from, from experience because we've had a mass influx of people from New York City come to my area. And guess what? They are being integrated into leadership. But it didn't happen overnight. So uh, I don't know what Keller's expecting here. But he's he's making some accusations. And and it's just amazing to me. It's it's uh, the white it's the white guilt thing. It's the the white um, privilege thing. It's it's the white people are uh, always hung out to dry. It seems like for, on this kind of stuff. No matter how generous they are, no matter how uh, on a grand scheme, how much they help with missions and Bible translations and aid and everything else, they're they're still the problem somehow. If the fast-growing non-white U.S. churches are supported by the church's power structure in a non-paternalistic way, and if their leaders are consistently embraced and included at all levels, then the public face of the church will look very different and much more credible. Again, credibility is the important thing here, isn't it? Credibility with whom, I would wonder? Is the Atlantic? Fourth, the church in the U.S. can grow again if it strikes a dynamic balance between innovation and conservation. A church must conserve historic Christian teaching. If a church simply adopts the beliefs of the culture, it will die because it has nothing unique to offer. But the church has always, especially in times when the faith seemed, um, man, that's a word I haven't seen in a while, moribund? I don't even know what that means. Faith seems, we're going to, you know, we're going to look that up. We're going to look up the, Keller is using a big word for the Atlantic audience. And uh, yes, I have two master's degrees, but I will confess, I don't know what this word is. (laughs) moribund okay um approaching death about to die all right so that's what it means there you go all right so the church is about to die especially in times when the faith seems moribund add that million dollar word to your vocabulary this week uh introduce unexpected innovations so basically desperate times call for desperate measures that's what he's saying there was no such thing as monasticism through which pagan northern europe was turned christian until there was There was no reformation until there was. There was no revival that turned Methodists and Baptists into culturally dominant forces in the Midwestern and Southeastern United States until there was. There was no East African revival led primarily by African people that helped turn Africa from a 9% Christian continent to a 50% Christian continent until there was. Christianity, like its founder, does not go from strength to strength, but from death to resurrection. It's interesting. I'll just point out, he says, let, uh, there was no East African revival led primarily by African people. He had to say that. Why did he have to say that? Well, because if he didn't acknowledge that, then he was going to undercut what he said earlier about uh, the Western church being insensitive or not reaching out and not including those who are non-Western. Because the those who were... Um, born again in the country of Africa had to hear the gospel from somewhere and it didn't just pop out of the ground it was missionaries who came there so he has to take away that the credit that those missionaries would get by saying led primarily by African people I believe that's why he did it Um, because I mean even if you want to say that you could say spurred on by or originating with or helped along by missionaries he doesn't say that, though. And that's 
that's one of the things I've noticed today in a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of narratives, like, especially today with the whole narrative that like Abraham Lincoln and um, the early Republican party and the union army don't really, we shouldn't um, give them any credit for ending the practice of slavery. Now I have my own quibbles and issues with this narrative, but, but the narrative that many of you have probably been taught about that is wrong because it denies the agency of black people of slaves who have been here. And, um, as if they freed themselves or something. And so um, I, I just see the same thing in that little comment Keller made there. It's a trend. Fifth, the church has in its favor what the Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor called the unique, the unquiet frontiers of modernity. He makes the case that Western culture is deeply conflicted about faith and God. Modern secularism holds that people are only physical entities without souls, that sensations of love and beauty are just neurological chemical events, and that there is no meaning other than what we construct, and that there is no right or wrong outside of what we in our minds choose. Yet most people feel that life is greater than what can be accounted for by naturalistic explanations. Okay, right, Keller, and you're getting closer to the truth here. Because most people do know that and think that, then you need to lead with that. That's the first front uh, foot forward to give to the Atlantic. We are preparing the people for the afterlife. There's a bigger world out there, and you are held accountable by the God who created all things. That's where the transcendence has to come from. If it doesn't come from there, where is it going to come from? Tr transcendence isn't just this thing you put in a box and say, well, it has a therapeutic quality to it if you believe in it. So uh, the church serves this purpose of offering transcendence. No, no, the church is beneath. It, 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 think of it this way. God is his law, his order is transcendent and the church fits within that, just like the state and, and everything else. The modern self is exceptionally fragile, Keller says, while having the freedom to define and validate oneself is superficially liberating. It is also exhausting. You and you alone must create and sustain your identity. This has contributed to unprecedented levels of depression, and anxiety and never satisfied longings for affirmation. The modern self is also fragmenting, as Bella argued, its individualism leading to the erosion of family, community, and unity, shared values in the nation. The breakdown of neighborhood and communities means that more and more our lives are run by faceless, massive, bureaucratic, and inhumane technologies aimed solely at economic efficiency. Now, nothing, not much to quibble with there. I mean, it's true. Uh, in stark contrast, though, Christianity offers grace and covenant. Protestant Christianity teaches its members that salvation is by sheer grace not by one's moral efforts or performance. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. So the cosmic ruler becomes our unconditionally loving heavenly father. And all who unite with God as father are brought into a family of faith, which is based not on contractual relationships sustained only as long as they benefit both parties' interests, but covenant relationships in which all parties pledge to serve one another in sacrificial love. So he's saying that the church can be a basis for getting along in society because of this model. What may happen is this, he says, even though the secular world markets its highly individualistic view of the self as objective and universal, the rest of the world sees that it is parochially, uh, parochially I can't even say this word, uh, parochially Western and shot through with non-empirical assumptions about human nature. As time goes on, secular Americans may begin to see that the rest of the world has developed cultures that are modern, but nonetheless religious. Young, secular Americans may feel themselves to be in a kind of a wasteland and begin to question their unbelief. All of this, Taylor thinks, 
may cause secularism to become less plausible over time. So there's an alienation we feel in our modern world and Christianity can fill the void. Christianity can offer us something. And he's right about that. Christianity does offer us something. Um, but again, it's the way he's framing it. That's the problem in my mind here. All of these factors in Christianity's favor will not necessarily trigger a renewal for that to happen. Three things need to be accomplished at least a significant uh, by a significant sector of the U.S. church. And I'm going to probably skim through this. We're almost done, actually. Maybe I'll just read it. Okay. The escape from political captivity. American evangelicals have largely responded to the decline of the church by turning to a political project of regaining power in order to expel secular people from places of cultural influence. But a demographically shrinking church that identifies heavily with one narrow band of political actors will not be relevant in America. A dynamically growing body of believers making visible sacrifices for the good of their neighbors, on the other hand, may indeed shape the culture, mainly through attraction rather than compulsion. Two things here. Why can't it be both? Why can't you have a state? I think was Louisiana just did this, didn't they? Or Alabama? Uh, outlawed, um, or they, they made it so that if you log into a porno pornographic website, you have to, there's an, you have to be 18. Uh, and, you know, this is a localized thing, but how come in local communities and local and states, uh, how come you can't where Christians are? I mean, he acknowledged in the beginning, Virginia is different than New York. How come Christians in areas where they're, they are a majority, how come they can't uh, implement some of these things, these measures? Um, and at the same time, vis visibly sacrifice themselves for the good of their neighbors. Why not both? <laughs> uh, it's not a one size fits all thing either. You know, it's not like, well, the church is diminishing. We'll never capture power. Might as well not try. We're not a country that is at least supposed to be a, you know, uniparty that uh, has one election for the president and for your congressional representative and your Senate representative. And that's it. Like we have local elections, we have state elections, right? There, you, you can gain ascendancy for a cause and on a state level that you can't on a national level. So anyway. A union of extraordinary prayer. That's the other thing. All religions promote and call for prayer, but historically during the times of fast growth and renewal, Christian movements have been marked by an extraordinary amount of communal prayer. During the early years of the explosive Christian movements in Korea, all night prayer meetings were common and they remain so in many parts of the country to this day. During the 18th century great awakening in America, Jonathan Edwards wrote of the explicit agreement and universal union of God's people and extraordinary prayers for revival of religion. Unions of believers for prayer, both large and small gatherings, have an empowering effect. The renewed growth of the church in the U.S. will not happen without it. And this is one point he makes that I 100% agree with. So don't let anyone tell you I disagree with everything Keller says because I completely agree. And that is a weak spot of the church. And he correctly identifies it. So credit where credit's due. Keller got that one right. The distinguishing of the gospel from moralism. I will say this, though. Let me just say this. Uh, what if I were to make a like, Keller all, makes all these false dichotomies? What if I were to do that? You know, Keller's saying, well, you can either help your neighbor or you can try to get political power. So you better try to help your neighbor instead. What if I said, well, you can either pray or you can pursue social justice. So, uh, yeah, you know, better pray. Keller wouldn't accept that. Right. The distinguishing of the gospel from moralism in a relativistic culture, the church will have to clearly declare that there are moral absolutes, which will be unpopular to say the least. It will be called domineering and abusive, but it mu we must not flinch. Uh, yet there is danger on the other side, too. Man, I wish this sentence stopped right there. Okay, what's the danger on the other side, Keller? The Christian gospel is that we are fully forgiven by God because of what Christ has done, not because of anything we have done. 
In traditional Protestant thought, there are two ways to lose one's grasp on the gospel. The most obvious is antinomianism, the belief that I can live any way I wish. But the other is legalism, the belief that through my moral goodness, I can put God in my debt. So he is obligated to bless and favor me. Both reject God as Savior and make you your own Savior and Lord. I have to process this for a second, what he just said. So antinomianism uh, is a great threat to that. I mean, antinomianism on, in its extreme form would, I guess, slide you into a Pelagianism of some kind. That uh, The law is so unimportant that not keeping it doesn't make you bad because it's not important. So um so you're good and you, you wouldn't be in need of Christ's substitutionary atonement, right? That would be, I guess, the attack there, that we're not really in need of repentance and confession and all that kind of thing. Uh, he says the other thing is legalism. And so um, the belief that through my moral goodness, I can put God in my debt. I guess I can see that. I mean, it's I'm thinking of the Pharisees here and, you know, they cry, tried to take man's laws and put them in the place and give them the authority of God's laws. And so that's really what legalism is. Um, it's not the belief that my moral goodness, I can put God in debt necessarily, but I can see how it, it could lead to that attitude. Um, so he is obligated to bless and favor me. Okay. Both reject God as a savior, make you your own savior and Lord. Uh, Langdon Gilkey was a young man in China during world war II and was confined to a Japanese internment camp. He recounts, uh, in the Shangtung compound. Also in prison with him was Eric Little, the former Olympic star and missionary to China. Gilkey, who was not a Christian uh, when he was interned, is honest about how the many missionaries in the in the camp or, or in the cramped and difficult conditions not only behaved in selfish and ungenerous ways, but often added sanctimonious rationales for their behavior. Little stood out. He poured himself out for others, uh, was overflowing with humor, kindness, inner peace, um, Gilkey concluded that religion and moralism do not produce love. Often they make self-centeredness worse, especially when they lead as they will to pride in one's own moral accomplishments. All right. Um, he goes on a, a bit about little here and, and I love Eric a little. So, I mean, he's speaking my language here. Um, let's, this is the final, final three paragraphs for the first five years after my life, I started Redeemer in Manhattan. We saw seasons of remarkable spiritual revival and growth. Scores of people embrace faith. Who, law, who most would have considered unlikely to be Christian converts. Looking back on that time, the most important reason for this was that we were offering God's grace as a unique path, different from either religious moralism or secular relativism. And going forward, a renewed Christian church must focus on this identity-altering, life-changing, community-forming message in the same way. Is Christianity going away in the U.S.? No. And although no one can predict when it will happen and how rapidly it will happen, there are many reasons to believe that growth will resume. But it will ha not happen until the church applies this famous saying of Jesus. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If the church aims at loving service to one's neighbor while clearly speaking the truth, it will grow again and may have cultural influence. But it, if it aims at influence rather than humble surface, it will have neither. So at the end, he has the false dichotomy again. Like uh, influence in political in the political arena is part of loving your neighbor. That's the whole point. It's not good for your neighbor to have unlimited access to abortion or to pornography, uh, to just name two obvious things, right? So if you can somehow stem those things and uh, 
you're loving your neighbor. You're fulfilling God's role here. So he wants to make these things like like they're at war with each other and insinuate that Christians who get politically involved on the right side, right? Because social justice, we just found out on the on the other side is, is what the church needs to be doing. But if you get involved on the conservative side, you are taking away from loving your neighbor. That's that's the bottom line with this whole piece. And because there's some truth in it, and he correctly identifies some things, I think for a lot of Christians, this kind of thing flies under the radar, and they don't see the reorientation that Keller is making to the role of the church. So we've gone now for an hour in 25 minutes almost, and uh, so that's 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 a long podcast, I guess, to go over one article, but I, I think this is helpful. I'm looking at the comments right now, and uh, man, there's a lot of them here. Yeah, why not both? I mean, this is the point I'm making. Doug Meek says, why not both? Jesus chose the first and rejected the latter. Why not both? Um, oh, maybe I don't agree. I don't know. I think, oh, so maybe Doug Meeks, I'm going to just guess at this. Maybe what he's saying is that maybe Keller's right because Jesus rejected political influence. Well, here's the thing. Jesus had a mission. What was his mission? To come and seek and save that which was lost. He didn't come to overturn the social hierarchies. He didn't. He wasn't coming to do a work of social justice. He was coming primarily to seek and save the lost. His, his miracles authenticated his ministry. He gave a foretaste of what the millennial kingdom was going to be like. He trained apostles to go and make disciples of the nations. And that's where it comes in, guys, in making disciples of the nations. In making disciples, you're going to have people that are, guess what? They're going to hold political office. They're going to be managers at banks. They're going to be all kinds of things. How do they apply the law of God to where they are? Is it good for Christians to be involved in the business world? How about the arts? Keller's really positive about that. Christians need to be involved in the arts. Hey, Jesus wasn't involved in the arts. Well, <laughs> uh, no, Jesus wasn't a painter. Jesus, no, he wasn't involved in the arts. Um, you could say that I guess there was eloquence to his delivery and some of his sermons and so forth. But no, he wasn't an artist. Does that mean Christians shouldn't be involved there? No, no, of course it doesn't. Christians should be involved there. And it doesn't mean that that's the church's mission, though. It means that as believers, we need to be involved. So I, I would make this distinction. I made it many times on this podcast that it's not the mission of the church as an institution to get political power. And I don't know if anyone is doing that. There's probably a few examples there. Uh, if if the, the main examples might be coming from historical black churches, I hate to say it where or, or mainline denominations where they have rainbow flags and so forth and they are um uh promoting you know local leaders in their churches and actively campaigning for candidates and making that part of the mission of the church that's a reorientation of the mission of the church that's wrong that's bad um but for christians to which is what most evangelical churches are doing to support individually candidates and for pastors to give moral direction and here are the principles and how to vote uh to steward it well before god because we let's guess what we have a congregation full of people who are voters that is faithful that is right that is good that's not turning your pulpit into a political engine or machine it's teaching what the bible says about the topic okay and there is a difference between those two things uh hopefully that helps i don't know um Keller's Redeemer did not succeed. Uh, yeah, I'd agree. I don't, I'm wondering how, I mean, I don't know what Redeemer's, how they're doing. I know they have multiple campuses. Maybe someone who goes there could weigh in in the 
chat section, but um, man, there, there's a lot here. I don't have time to get to all of it. We've gone a long time already. Uh, I will, I will answer this question real quick. Cause so many people have asked me this. Dave Nielsen asks a bit off topic, but I haven't seen much contemporary challenging biblical critical theory by Watkin. I find it hard to believe this means it's bulletproof. Well, it's not bulletproof, but I'll tell you why Dave, that that book has not been challenged. And, and, and this is relevant because Tim Keller endorsed this book, biblical critical theory. I downloaded it. I have it on my uh, Kindle and in my Kindle account, and I've been intending to go through it. When I looked at it, though, it's a daunting task. It's a long read, guys. This isn't a short read. And I, I think that's probably been the barrier is that there's a lot of other things to get to. And you, you go and look at, at a, a book like that and you're like, man, this is all error, you know, or, or it may not be. But the assumption being if Keller's endorsing this and it's called biblical critical theory, it probably has a lot of error in it. And do I really want to read whatever it is, 800 pages of that? No. <laughs> and, and so it would be a long review for me to go through it. And that's why I haven't. But I, I do hope to one day. We'll see if I get to it. Um, anyway, uh, let's see. Doug Meeks weighed in again. I'm just going to read what he says here. Protestant mainline and some conservative churches seek after political power. Both are wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm open to the fact that there's... Uh, right-leaning churches who seek after political influence in some way, but it, it really, again, depends. You gotta, you gotta make these distinctions. W what do you mean by that? Do you mean, uh, and I'm not saying to Doug specifically, but anyone who brings this up, it's so general and Keller brings it up in this such general way too, that w if, if you mean that it's wrong for Christians to desire to be salt and light in the political arena, obviously that's off. And I think what Keller's doing actually throws a wrench in that and it is a barrier to Christians doing that because he's like, well, you got a disciple. Um, if what you mean by by that, though, and not disciple, sorry, you got to help your neighbor, you know, not that help your neighbor. If what you mean by that, though, is make the church a servant to the political arena, that would be wrong. So the church becomes the purpose for the church becomes a, uh, a this worldly purpose instead of an otherworldly purpose that would be wrong. Okay. And, and that's actually what Keller is doing. That's the ironic part of all of this. He is trying to reorient the church or at least introduce this second mission that the church has. That's going to gain it credibility if it pursues social justice. And it, it's not, it's not going to happen. We, we've already seen that the churches that he's even promoting as examples of doing this though, the two, the two examples he gives are mainline denominations that only pursue justice. And he's like, well, that's imbalanced. Well, if, if that's going to be the thing to gain us credibility, then why are they diminishing at the fastest rates of any group? The other one is the black church, which I already told you is also diminishing in New York City. It's black neighborhoods where churches are closing more than other places. So that doesn't seem to be working. Keller doesn't have an example to pull from here. There, there's societal shifts that are going on on a level that I would say that we're, we're going over. We're on the roller coaster. We're going down the initial descent. And you can't stop necessarily that from happening. God can stop it. God can have a revival. But we're, we're not going to outgame and outstrategize this one, guys. Um, that's why I've pushed a localist approach to this. Like, you know, you try to find your community, be local, purchase local as much as you can. I know I just said I have a Kindle. Well, I don't know of any other. Uh, I mean, I could do Barnes and Noble, but there aren't local alternatives to that yet. I mean, we have, you know, local libraries and so forth. And, but there, Anything that you can get involved with locally and exert influence, you have much more control there. 
And there are regions that uh, have, there's more Christian influence in some of those local uh, areas. And so that, that's what I've advocated for a long time. Um, so much more that I could say, but we are over an hour and a half in. So I really want to um, end the podcast now. Uh, briefly, just uh, let the patrons and those who support this ministry. Um, I usually, I don't call this a ministry generally. And, you know, because some of what I do is ministry related, I suppose, in a parachurch kind of way, I guess. But, you know, it's me just, it's giving you my opinion on things, if it'll be helpful. Um, but there are some things that I now have dabbled in that I would say, yeah, I guess that's ministry related. So one of them that I'm doing right now is, um, and, and I will have more information coming. I don't have a lot now, but Zach Garris, Zach Garris, uh, the author of Masculine Christianity, uh, is going to be coming to the Hudson Valley region of New York. So that doesn't apply to probably the majority of the audience, but some of you uh, will definitely uh, that will apply to. Let me let me show you here. This isn't public yet, um, but uh, it will be soon. And so um, he's going to be. Uh, let's see if I can pull this up so everyone can see what I'm looking at. So Zach is going to be uh, speaking on the role of men and all of that at uh, uh, probably at Grace Bible Church in Wappingers Falls, New York. It's either going to be that or another venue that we have we have yet to decide. We'll probably decide within the next week. But I'm just giving everyone a heads up. That's for March 24th. If you're in the even the tri-state area, you might want to come out if you're in Connecticut or New Jersey. Um, it'll be a good night. And it's going to be a game dinner. In other words, we're going to be eating some venison. Um, I'm going to see as many fish as I can catch between now and then. We'll have a fish fry, Lord willing. It's going to be some good food. And, and this is for men specifically. So... Uh, it's a it's another men's event, so I just want to let people know about that. Um, this morning, oof, I booked. <laughs> I was like, man, flight flight rates are not cheap, um, and rental cars not cheap either. They've since 2020, those things have gone up quite a bit. But I booked a bunch of travel uh, for the 1607 project. If you haven't looked at that, please go check out the 1607 project. 1607 project.com, I believe, and you can look at our little video and a few essays there. It's one of the main things I'm going to be doing, and I'm excited about it. I'm going to be interviewing a number of experts on American history. This is going to be a best, uh, the better, robust competitor to the 1619 uh, project. And um, and so uh, I'm not saying that <laughs> that project's not a ministry. The Zach Garris thing, yes, but um, it it is helpful though for individuals who are Christians who are trying to raise their children to love their country and. Um, also see the good things about it. There's bad things in every tradition in every country, but trying to look at the United States in a more objective way. And also um, we're emphasizing, Zach is the one actually, who is writing a whole section on the colonial religious tradition in Virginia, and it's going to be great. So um, check that out. If you want to give to that project, one way you can give is by going to 1607project.com and you can uh, give there. Um, I'm going to probably have a give, send, go up. That's, um, so if you give this to 1607 project, that's 501c3. Uh, if you, um, give to this, which it, I haven't put up yet, it won't be, but I'm probably going to, uh, just to help offset some of our expenses, uh, for this, uh, create a give, send, go. And I have a number of other projects to announce to you in regards to, uh, filming documentaries, uh, 
We have one on China that we're, we, we worked on for a while and we're going to, we're going to do it this year, especially after what happened over uh, last week. Uh, we're making the arrangements uh, to, and, and we should have a trailer out for you soon, a concept trailer on that. Um, man, what else? There's a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot. But uh, I appreciate all your prayers and um, and support and the continued support. And I will uh, give you a number of more uh, podcasts and material later this week. Um, I don't know exactly all we're going to get to, but I will say this. I want to finish off the Keller series, and I really want to talk about AI. People have been talking about this chat thing. Chat, was it GP or something? GPT? I don't know. But I want to talk about that, too, because... Uh, there's some people are freaking out about it and, you know, I'm not freaking out about it, but, um, it definitely is revolutionary. It's definitely taking us into a different world, a different era. And what does that mean? What, what does that mean for Christians too? So I'm going to talk about that perhaps later in the week as well. Uh, more coming. God bless. Bye now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.